Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. This is God's word. Good evening. Welcome. If we haven't met, uh, my name's Phil. Uh, I'm one of the other pastors on the staff here. And it's great to, to be back in Exodus after our break of a week. And it's great to see you here. You've, you've done tremendously well. You've got the hour change right. You've got the, the change of service time right. Or, um, you forgot both and still arrived somehow on time for the 7 p.m. Whatever. It's great to, to, to see you here. And we've got a fantastic passage to, to look at tonight. So let's pray for God's help as we look at perhaps one of the most familiar parts of his word together. Our Father God, we pray that familiarity wouldn't uh, dull us to, to being attentive to what your Spirit says. We pray, Father, that you would teach us your good character. You would show us our sinfulness and our need of your Saviour. And you would help us to grow in our delight of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This has got to be one of the most famous, well-known texts in all of world history. Doesn't mean we necessarily know what's in it. I'm not going to see if anybody here thinks they can get all Ten Commandments in correct order. But it is a very, we know roughly about it. Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments, which is why the internet's awash with alternative versions. The concept of the Ten Commandments is part of our cultural heritage, uh, right around the world actually. And whether or not we call ourselves Christians, I think that that probably means that we all have questions about this text. Uh, can you really take your modern moral framework to live your life in this world out here from an ancient book like this? Can you really do that? Is that even vaguely sensible? Of all the laws that you could pick around the world, are these really the ten best? Is this really God's top ten? 
Does this moral framework actually work? If I live my life this way, will it go well? Will this, uh, will this lead me to a full life or is this going to restrict my life? Maybe we wonder, look, uh, if I live this way, will it bring me closer to God? Is this a, is this a path that'll lead me to, to God? I'd love to know him better. I think the biggest issue for us is basically though, if I live this way, is this life to the full or is this restricted, narrow, empty, joyless life? And I think I want to just ask three questions really of the text tonight. Three questions which I hope will help us get a handle on it and hear what God is saying to us. The three questions are these, if you want to write them down. Who are they for? What do they tell us? Where do they lead? Who are they for? What do they tell us? And where do they lead? The Ten Commandments. Uh, Firstly then, who are they for? And this is in some ways the, the most frequently missed, ignored, misunderstood part of this text. But it is crucial, because the truth is we could work out all the detail perfectly, but if we get this wrong, we will not hear what God is saying. And we will make a terrible, terrible mistake. We will get ourselves, we'll make a, a spiritual train wreck of things if we don't get this right. You see, you can make all the right calculations about understanding it, but if your basic assumptions are wrong, you're in real trouble. In 1983, um, I'm sorry to raise uh, the issue of um, plane travel at the moment. We're slightly too aware of the dangers, but uh, Air Canada Flight 143 was being prepared for takeoff in Canada. And the uh, pilots, as they do, carefully worked out exactly how much fuel the plane needs. You don't want too much because it makes the plane heavy, costs money. You don't want too little for fairly obvious reasons. And so they worked it out in kilos and gave the calculations to the ground crew who precisely measured out the weight of fuel to go into the plane in pounds. So Air Canada Flight 143 was carrying on happily at 41,000 feet when halfway to its destination, it turned into a glider. And 767s weighing 200 tonnes are not designed to glide. And they were hundreds of miles from any airfield. The calculations were precise, perfect, down to the gram. The problem was the basic assumption was completely wrong. Actually, catastrophic tragedy turned into total farce when they realised there was no airfield nearby, but there was a racetrack, and there was a race carrying on at the time. So some driver was hammering down the the finishing straight, (laughs) overtaken by a 200-mile-an-hour 767 coming into crash land next to him. I I kid you not. Incredible. But it should have been a catastrophe, and the catastrophe was basically caused by an assumption. Perfect calculations on a totally wrong assumption. And the assumption that most people make as they come to the Ten Commandments, to this list of God's laws, is if I live like this, God will accept me. This is how I get an entry into God's people. This is God's telling me how to become his, how to be acceptable to him, how to be loved by him. But that is utterly wrong. And all you've got to be able to do is count from one to three in order to see that. So all you've got to be able to do, count from one to three in order. The chronology gives you the theology. Look at verses one to three. Chapter 20, and God spoke all these words. Verse two, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Verse 3 is the first commandment. Verse 2 is about God saving his people. Which comes first? Two. In other words, this is not what God requires of his people so that he will accept them. This is what God gives to his already saved people. Uh, we've been going through Exodus. You remember, it's not as if um, the oppressed Israelites are crying out in slavery, God save us, God save us. And so God sends down the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and says, keep these, we'll see how you do. If it goes well enough, then I'll pound Pharaoh with the plagues and take you out of Egypt. It's not like uh, as they get to the Red Sea with the Pharaoh's chariot army charging down behind them. Uh, God splits the sea and the, there's an angel stood there at the front with a, with a checklist. Yep, yep, mm, sorry, you were rude to your parents last week. No, uh, yep, yep, ooh, hang on a second. You were coveting your neighbor's donkey. It didn't work like that. God opened the sea and called his people through and having rescued them, after the sea had closed behind them, Then he brings them to his mountain and then he gives them his law. These are not entry requirements into the people of God. These are the code of conduct for members of God's people. They are for God's rescued people. But actually, they're not just for. Who are they for? God's rescued people. But they're not just for God's rescued people. You see, Deuteronomy 4, 6 to 8, tells us that God gave his laws to this one nation, Israel, so that the other nations would look in and would see and would think, those laws are brilliant. Look at life lived by those laws. It's wonderful. The Israelites, their culture, their society works. What a blessed people they must be. What a wise God they must have. We would love to to have this God as our God. Or in other words, this is God giving them the Ten Commandments, is building a show home and saying, look at this, wouldn't you like to live here? This is where you get to live. This is how you get to live if you follow this God. That's what he's doing. He's built this wonderful show home. And the aim is that the nations would look at Israel, the one chosen nation, and say, we want what they have. We want their God to be our God. You see, these aren't just sensible for Israel, as if the Israelites were some weird, strange version of humanity, but actually uh, it doesn't work for any other human beings in history. No, these are, these are God's wise rules for all humans. If you're a human... It's God's wisdom for you. It's God's law for Israel, but it's God's gift, his wisdom, his blessing for the whole world. And it's, it's a huge and wonderful thing for God, the creator, to give us the best way to live. This is like, uh, we've got a football pitch, we've got a football, and then God gives us the rules of the game and a referee. Finally, we can enjoy it. We've got a piano, we don't know what to do with it, and God sends music lessons and Chopin sonatas in a book. Uh, We've got a whole load of ingredients and God sends us Jamie's 30-minute meals and only seven hours later we could have a nice dinner if you're anything like me. But you see, this this is God the creator saying, I want you to know as humans made in my image how best to enjoy life in my world and this, this is how you do it. This is how you do it, these commands. So Psalm 119 verse 32, I run in the path of your commands because... You've set my heart free. That's what it means to live in God's commands. But we do need to be careful here. There is a sense in which these are rules for all people because God is the God who made all people and this is God's wisdom for everybody. If you're human, this makes sense for you. 
But verse 2 explains that these laws were given in this way to a particular people at a particular time. So I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, these laws were given in this form to the the slave pyramid-building people of Israel. We are not them. So we need to be a bit careful before we just dump everything that we find in the Bible onto ourselves as if it's written to us, when it's not. We're not them. See, these are God's laws for when his people are gathered as one nation. When the, when the nation is the same as the people of God. It's not the same today, because God's people are scattered throughout all the nations of this world. And the New Testament never, ever encourages us to make the Ten Commandments the rule, the law of our country. They're God's wisdom for all human beings, but they're not God's rules for the nation-states of this world. While the nation-states are a mixture of followers of God and not followers of God. The truth is that the rules that the New Testament gives are not radically different from these. It's not as if God says, well, in the Old Testament, I wasn't so big on murder and adultery, but in the New Testament, they're fine. There's another load of things I don't like. No, God is the same. And so the things that you find God says no to in the New Testament, the things that you find God says live this way, they're in line with this. But this isn't the laws of of our nation. This isn't the laws of us. It's different now in the New Testament time. So we are in the same position in the sense that we're humans and God's ways are wise. But we're in a different position. They're not our rule. They're not our law. And actually we're, we're in a very similar position in another way in that when you read the New Testament, uh, the bit of the Bible after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the majority of it, or at least half of it, is basically letters written to, to young churches full of new Christians to tell them what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ. And they all follow this pattern, the Exodus 20 pattern. By and large, the first half of it's all about how God saved them. Just like the Israelites, not through what they did, but through Jesus' death on the cross in their place. And then the second half is all about how you should live. So the first half um, explains what Matt said right at the start of our meeting tonight, that uh, we two were slaves, not the slavery of uh, being pharaoh slaves in metal chains, but the slavery of the, well, the shameful, the corrupt, the wrongful desires of our hearts that we find impossible to break. And God has set us free, not by splitting the Red Sea, but by his son being split open on the cross for us. So we are like them in that way. We're not saved by stuff we do, we're saved by God's almighty act. And therefore, we follow him. So uh, chapters 1 to 12, uh, 1 to 11 of the book of Romans are all about how Jesus died for us. And we're saved by trusting in him. And then chapters 12 to 15, 15, 16 are are really about how we should live in response to that. And the hinge verse, 12, 1, at the end of the bit about how uh, God saves us, before the bit about what we should do, the hinge verse says, therefore, in view of God's mercy... Offer your lives as living sacrifices. Do you see? Exactly the same as Exodus 20. God saves us, then we serve him. Not, we serve God and if we're good enough, then God will accept us. That has never been Christianity and it never will be. 
God's rules are not a ladder for us to climb up to God, earning, deserving, obeying our way into his acceptance or blessing. They're not a ladder for us to climb up. They're railway tracks for us to lay out that show us once we're his people, which way we live so that we can run free and fast, knowing the best way to avoid harm and to find fulfillment in this life. And so for us, although this isn't our law, the pattern is exactly the same. God saves us, we serve him. So who are the Ten Commandments for? Well, they were for Israel as a law to govern them. They are for us as wisdom to guide. And like all the rules in the Bible, they are not telling us how to get right with God, but telling us how to live once we're right with him. Who are they for? Uh, They're for God's redeemed people. What do they tell us? What do they tell us? Let's look at the detail together um, as we work through verse 3 to 17. Now, over the summer, we'll look at each commandment separately. Um, But tonight, I just want to see what picture we build up as we work out the the whole of them together. Before we dive into into that detail, you'll notice, though, that there are mainly negatives. They're mainly negatives. Why is that? Because we are free which sounds pretty counterintuitive. But actually, the fact that they're negatives, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, by and large, not all of them, but most of them, tells us that we are basically free. To us, it sounds constricting and restrictive, but actually it shows we're free. So on that one sunny day that we'll get this year, I promise it will come, the one sunny Saturday, when it's not a Wednesday, not a Monday, but a Saturday when the sun shines and it's warm, you go to the park, what do you find at the entrance to the park? List of rules. You go to the swimming pool, what do you find? List of rules. And they're basically negative. No lighting fires, no barbecues. More usually that's at the park rather than the pool. Uh, No bombing, no heavy petting, usually at the pool. Uh, Why do they have those things in negative? Because you're free to do whatever you like except those things. If you find yourself at a park where it says, you must smile, happiness is mandatory, frisbee and football must be played, you are not free. You're in North Korea at that point. You see, when you have a positive command, you must do this, it means you cannot do anything except this one thing. When you have a negative command, you cannot do it, it means you can do anything you want except this thing. And the Ten Commandments are negatives because basically God has set us free in his world. But he's told us what to avoid so that we don't harm ourselves. They also tell us what God is like. The commandments reveal God's character to us. And I want us just to to get a brief overview of what God is like as we look through uh, the commandments tonight. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Worship God alone. Why? Because he is the only real God. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Don't make images of God, whether they're physically carved ones or the mentally carved images of I like to think of God as. Why? Because we'll never think of God as he really is. We'd never make up a God like this. So don't carve images. Don't 
Don't be creative when it comes to working out what God is like. Verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Don't apply the, the name of God. In the name of Jesus, this, uh, we want that, uh, Jesus, amen. Don't apply God's word to our plans like some magic abracadabra formula, as if God is our pet genie. He's not. He's God, we're not. So be careful about how you use his name. Verse 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Don't try to work seven days a week because God designed you to need rest. You don't believe me, it is true. He designed you to need rest. Why did God do that? Because God is the fulfillment of all the restless longings of our souls. And therefore he designed us with an inbuilt, hardwired longing for rest. Because in him we find it. And one day we'll know it perfectly. Verse 12. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Obey proper authorities, especially the most fundamental unit of society, the family. Obey your parents because God has made a universe where authority and obedience are part of his good order. And that order actually reflects himself. God the Son, Jesus Christ, loves loves to obey his father. Authority and structure are a good thing, rightly used. So obey your parents. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Protect life from the womb to the tomb because God is the God of life. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Be faithful in marriage. Why? Because because God is utterly faithful to keep his covenant, his promise to protect and to provide for his people. Actually, there's a, there's a lovely little verse at the end of the book of Joshua. Um, so Joshua has led the people of God after this period into the promised land. So they've got the inheritance God has promised them. All the promises that God has made. And at the end of the book, the, the people of Israel are gathered before Joshua. And he says this wonderful phrase where he says literally, not one of all of the good promises the Lord your God gave you has fallen to the ground. Not one word has fallen to the ground. It's the sort of God he is. A God whose words never fall. Always are fulfilled. You can always stand on his word. And because of that, he tells us, be faithful in marriage as a picture of my faithfulness, because I am a faithful God. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Don't steal, because God is not tight-fisted. He is unbelievably generous. When the only thing that could pay for our sins was his precious son, then God did not withhold him, but allowed his son to go willingly to die for us. So don't steal, because God is generous. Verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't tell lies against others, because God is a God of truth, not lies. Verse 17, lastly, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet. Don't envy. What does that tell us about God? It tells us three things, I think. It tells us that he is sovereign and that he is good. He is in control of what you have, and he is good in what he gives you and good in what he doesn't give you. So don't cover, don't look out to other people and think, I wish I had that, because that shows you don't believe God is really in control of what you have, and you don't believe he is really good in what he's given or withheld. But because he's sovereign and because he's good, don't envy, don't covet. Pray to him, trust him. It also shows one other thing. This commandment, more than any of the others, shows God is not just concerned with outward obedience, as if we can say, yep, tick, 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 tick. God is concerned with what is going on in your heart. He is a God who cares about our motivations as much as our actions. Which would be all well and great. It's a lovely picture of God, except that for most of us, we think there are one or two bits of his laws we don't actually agree with. And the internet is awash with um, modern-day philosophers who, in their great humility, have written alternative improvements on the Ten Commandments. Most of them, interestingly, still share about five of God's list. And the truth is, though, that when any of us come to read God's rules in the Bible, we all find bits that... I just wish that wasn't there. I'd like to find a way around that one. I'm not sure that one really applies to me today. But let me ask you a question. Would you expect God's moral compass to match yours exactly? Let's just say for the sake of argument, there really is a great creator God who knows everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, a real God like the Bible describes. And let's just say that this God gives his ten commandments of ten things, the most foundational things that express what it means to love him and to love people. Would you expect that God's moral compass would be exactly 100% matching yours? Would you expect that you and I, standing at our moment in cultural history, with our prejudices from our culture, our blind spots from our upbringing, would you really expect any of us to be so wise, so moral, so perfect, that we would get it perfectly right and that our hearts would chime in with God on his moral compass? I think if we have an ounce of humility and self-awareness, we need to recognize that there are always going to be things that we will not agree with about God's moral order. And the problem, the fault, is unlikely to be with God. It is more likely with me and my prejudices and my desire to justify myself. See, we're not, we're not very good at cultural humility, actually, in 21st century Britain. We are incredibly proud. Uh, those who know me well would probably say I'm cutting edge when it comes to this sort of part of our culture. Uh, but it was a, it was very interesting. I think we're all there. Uh, David Cameron, last, last year, two years ago, berating the Church of England, um, for being out of step. And he said, it's time they got with the program. The interesting thing is all the commentators agreed with him. Nobody said, I wonder whether it's worth asking whether if we're out of step with 
the Bible, it might be a problem with our culture rather than the Bible. No, 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 don't be ridiculous. Church of England needs to get in step, get with the program. Thanks for that. Here's the thing. There are lots of areas where our culture is actually quite close to the Bible. Our standards are actually still quite close to the Bible. But there are lots of other areas where there is a big divide. Uh, For instance, family life, sexual ethics. And you know what? When it comes to family life and sexual ethics, there is not a great queue of other cultures around the world saying, my goodness, please, would you in 21st century Britain, in London, please tell us how on earth you run family and, and, and do sex education for kids because you've so got that nailed. We would love to learn from you. They're not queuing up to learn from us on that. I don't mean to be flippant or sarcastic, but... We are in a mess in the areas where we have departed from the Bible. And we should be a lot slower to jump to criticize the Bible when the results in our culture are so awful. The truth is, we will always find ourselves chafing against certain bits of what God says. And the truth is that where our culture departs from the Bible, our culture is suffering. Our culture is suffering. We are a fallen, finite, living in God-ignoring culture type people. And therefore it is no surprise to find God is radically different in his standards to us. But it is God who judges our culture and not the other way around. Uh, who are they for? They're for God's rescued, forgiven people. What do they tell us? They tell us that we're free. <laughs> they also tell us that God is very, very good. They tell us he's very good as they paint a picture of him. But where do they lead us? They don't lead us to a somewhere, they actually lead us to a someone. All the Bible leads to focuses on Jesus, and this is actually no exception. You can debate in abstract about uh, the merit of the Ten Commandments, so I doubt I've convinced um, anybody who's sceptical that God's commands are better than any of the modern versions, or God's commands are better than our culture in the places we differ. I doubt I can convince you of that in two minutes. But when you see God's laws, not in abstract, but lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. See, uh, literally, the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Words, and Jesus is the Word, these words made flesh. And when you see how beautiful, courageous, full his life is, you realize how good, how right, how honorable, how sensible, how wonderful the Ten Commandments are as a way of life. He is the fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ. He shows, he fills up in his life what it looks like to live out the law of God. And so there is a sense in which these commandments lead us to Christ because they paint a picture of him. But they should lead us somewhere else before we go to Christ, which is on to our knees. Especially when you remember how Jesus interprets these commandments. He, uh, when he comes to thou shalt not commit adultery, he says, yeah, you're guilty of that in your heart if you look lustfully at somebody else. When it comes to murder, he says, don't be so quick to say I haven't done that. He says, if you've hated somebody or been abusive to somebody with your mouth, then you've, <laughs> you've done the heart part of that command. We fail to keep God's law every day, every single one of us, that's the truth. We live in a way which is uh, not just fundamentally at odds with a law, that's, you know, who cares. We live in a way which is fundamentally at odds with God, 
who expresses his character in his law. And that is a serious matter. When you and I ignore God's ways, we are putting ourselves against God. We are offending him. But we think, well, okay, but I'm doing my best. And can you really actually imagine anybody living this perfectly, really never managing to break any of them? Well, yes, you don't have to imagine it. You can read about it. The life of Jesus Christ, every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of his life, he loved God and loved people and kept these commandments perfectly, without error. So often I chat to people who say to me, I could never be a Christian. And usually what they mean is, I could never live like Jesus. If being a Christian is that, if being a Christian is being able to keep the Ten Commandments or being able to follow Jesus' example, then it's just not for me. There's no way I could live like that. But that is to make a terrible assumption. That is to make the assumption that will lead you to a spiritual plane crash. It is to assume that this is what you've got to be like to be a Christian. You've got to be like this. This is, this is the template for a Christian to live up to. If you look at the handout, you'll see that there, there's something we haven't yet done from the front page of the handout we'll do in a minute, and that is to confess our sins. And we do that every week at church. Because Christianity is not for people who are just very good at keeping the Ten Commandments. Christianity is for people who fail to keep the Ten Commandments, who can't keep them. And so turn to God for mercy and confess our sins. See, the focus of Jesus' life was not living a perfect life. He does that, but that's not the focus. Jesus' aim in coming to the earth was not to to live out the Ten Commandments and say, this is what it looks like. He does that, but the focus of his life is at Easter, his death, as a lawbreaker, as he's dragged out of Jerusalem and nailed to a cross, crucified, put to death. See, before he is an example to follow, he is a saviour to trust in. He swaps places with us and he is punished as if he's broken the law so that you and I can be forgiven and accepted as if we have kept the law in Jesus. So don't make that mistake. Don't see the law as this unattainable goal. See in the law the character of Christ. See in the law our sinfulness reflected like a mirror and come to Christ. Come to him for forgiveness. And when you do that, then we can see, as Israel did, that this law is a blessing. God gives the law to Israel because he loves the people he saves. He wants them to know his character and he wants them to live in a way which is full and free. And he wants the people around them to see how good it is to follow God. And still today, God wants us to come to him to receive forgiveness in Jesus. And then God wants us to live his way because he loves you and he wants you to live life to the full and he wants you not to make a train wreck of your life. So he gives you good good rules to keep you from harm. And he wants other people to be able to look in at your lives, at our life together as a church and say, that works, it's beautiful. I like what they have. I want to know this God. When we follow God's ways and wisdom, we know life and richness and blessing, even as we stand distinct from our culture. 
when we ignore, belittle, or reject God's way, we trash his name and reputation, and we miss out on the blessing of a full life and a life that brings others to know this God. I'm going to finish there, but there's a there's time that's uh, only just turned seven, so there's time for a couple of questions if people would like to ask one or two questions about what we've looked at in the Ten Commandments in God's law. Yes. Here, can I comment on verse uh, four to six where it says, God is a, he's a jealous God who punishes sin for the sins of the fathers of the third and fourth generation, but he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, the Bible was written in Hebrew and uh, very few of us here can read Hebrew, so it has to be translated to English. It's also written in a, in an old culture, not just an old language, but an old culture. And so some of the way they phrase things is just different to us. Uh, so, it just doesn't work in our ears. So if you're translating um, Italian, I won't try and say it in Italian, instead of saying sleep like a log, you say sleep like a dormouse. It's just their way of saying the same thing. This is the, this is an, uh, this is the way you would say in that language and culture. God is a God who is just. He is so just that he will trace sins down through generations. But his mercy is far greater, far richer. So even though he is so just that he will trace sins down generations, Three or four generations of sin, but thousands of generations of blessing for those who honor him. So it's a way of saying he's both just and merciful and kind, and his mercy and his grace are somehow hugely richer even than his, his justice. Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, Jesus said that if you love me, you will follow all my commands. I mean, apart from the Ten Commandments or laws about eating this and that and don't eat this, there are some Christian sectors who would say, like, we shouldn't be eating pork, we shouldn't be eating shrimps, because that goes against what Jesus said, you will follow all, not some, of my commands. Where is the balance in that? Um, uh, so I wouldn't want balance. I want to follow what Jesus says. Um, so Jesus does say uh, that we should follow all his commands, all God's commands. But the Old Testament is it's clear even in the Old Testament that it's there's going to be a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. It's clear that it's a temporary phase for when Israel, God's people, are just one nation. And so uh, in the New Testament, Jesus in Mark 7 does away with the food laws. The whole book of Hebrews in one sense is to show that we no longer need priests and sacrifices because Jesus comes to be the final priest, the final sacrifice. Jesus says in John 2 that the, the true temple is his body. You don't have to go, the temple in Jerusalem is just a picture. So what they've got right is they say we've got to follow what Jesus says. Um, there are all sorts of ways people have worked it out in the past, but the simplest way is just go to Jesus. The whole Bible points to him, and Jesus uh, Jesus says the food laws, the stuff, all that stuff, which was designed to show the Israelites you've got to be different, and being different covers every area of life. It's just a big visual illustration for them while they're childish in understanding, if you like. Um, but Jesus says that was for a time. It's now served its purpose. It's shown you've got to be distinct in every area to be my people. It was never really about the food. So, okay, that, that time's gone. You can now eat bacon sandwiches. The, the temple, the sacrifices, that's just to show you your need of a, a sacrifice to pay for sins and to show what, so that you understand what happens as Jesus hangs on a cross. And how else will we understand what's going on? But once that's happened, once the reality has come, you, you no longer need the signs. So, you know, if you're driving along the motorway and you see the signs for to Stonehenge, once you get to Stonehenge and see 
that very small, overrated monument, you, you don't go back and stare at the sign. The sign served its purpose. Um, but Jesus is the key. So we go through Jesus. We don't pick and choose. It's because we take the Bible seriously that we don't keep the Old Testament food laws because Jesus says don't. They point to me, and once you've come to me, you follow the Bible as I command you. And so we learn from them as wisdom. They show us all sorts. In particular, they show us that to follow God changes every area of life, which is why they were given laws for every little thing. And to follow God means being different from the people around us. But we now understand that that doesn't mean different in the food you eat. It means uh, morally different. Yes, Mark 7 makes it explicit. Jesus abolishes the food laws. There was one at the back, and that's probably the last one, and there's time for questions afterwards. Um, um, verse 4, it says, You shall not make yourself anything idle in the form of anything from heaven above, etc. Um, how do we justify ourselves, or should we, um, entertaining nice images of Jesus Christ and Father? and Like that. And, yeah, like that. <laughs> and and I just, I, I, I thought of this question when my good friend of mine asked me, um, you know how do we how do we do this when uh, the Islamic State is 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 cutting off uh, 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 images of other things? And I was thinking, oh yes, their their fervor is quite good. Um, the, <laughs> to give a, a short answer, um, we've got to be careful. This command is a serious command. God says, "Don't depict me," because as soon as we depict him, we get him wrong. He said, "I've revealed myself in word." So it's interesting. It, uh, we're told at Sinai, you did not see an image, you heard a word. And for some reason, that's the way God has chosen to reveal himself, uh, is, is through words rather than an image. So you've got four whole Gospels of Jesus. How much physical description do we have? Not a word, a physical description. Interesting. Uh, so I think it's... But God made himself a human in Jesus. So I think it's probably... Uh, God re- God revealed himself as a Middle Eastern man. So I think it's, I don't think it's particularly wrong to have a picture of Jesus. I don't like them in church like this. We inherited the building. Um, because that can confuse us. Are we sort of to worship that or is that really what Jesus looks like? But I don't think there's a, it's a particular problem because God chosen to make himself a, a human being. Um, but we should never try and depict God the Father. Um, and I think once people are old enough to understand the Bible, once you pass the, the children's age, I'm uncomfortable. I just don't like to have the image of any particular human in my mind when I come to Jesus. But I don't think that this verse uh, would say um, we should make a big pile of children's Bibles and burn them. Um, but I, I do think it says uh, icons and that sort of thing, they're not really helpful. That's not how God has chosen for us to know him. I'm going to stop there. There's a, afterwards, um, I'll be sort of around at the front. If, uh, if people want to, to ask questions, after about 20 minutes, um, I'll be down here. And um, if a number of people want to, want to come and ask questions, we can carry on then.